Our scripture lesson today is from the gospel according to Mark, chapter 12, beginning at verse 28. One of the scribes came near and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, the scribe asked him, which commandment is the first of all? Jesus answered, the first is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and besides him there is no other. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself. This is much more important than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any question. In our family, we have a little joke. Well, I don't, I don't really mean a joke. It's kind of serious. We learned this from my sister-in-law and her husband. Now, keep in mind that my husband and I fancy ourselves as experts on couple communication. Together, we have taught hundreds of couples the principles and practices of a healthy marriage. But my sister-in-law and her husband, they are an accountant and an engineer, they are the ones that taught us an invaluable lesson about marriage. Here's how it goes. If you and your spouse are out to dinner and you have a disagreement, let's say, for instance, he says, the capital of Texas is Houston. And you say, no, 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 it's Austin. And then one of you pulls out the phone and you Google it and you discover it's really Austin. Then he has to say, you were right and I was wrong loud enough for the people at the next table to hear those words. Today's scripture passage, it takes place in the middle of such a dispute. Tensions run high in the middle of this dispute between Jesus and the leaders of the temple. If we were to read the whole chapter from Mark, we would read that the religious leaders seek to trap Jesus. They want to arrest him. They question his authority in speaking. And Jesus confronts them back saying, you are quite wrong. This is not Jesus quietly teaching on some grassy hillside. No, this is Jesus standing in the middle of the temple going toe-to-toe -to -toe intellectually with those who think they know what it is God really wants. In the middle of this philosophical provocation, one of the religious leaders hears all this disputing, all this banter, and he is quite impressed that Jesus seems to have the right answers. And so he lobs in a new question in the midst of the fray. And after Jesus answers this question, we are told, after that, no one dared ask him any question. It's as if the matter has become crystal clear. The religious leader says, you're right, Jesus. And the tension dissipates in an instant. Both Jesus and his challengers see the truth 
crystal clear. What does Jesus say that outwits them? What does he say to silence those who want to dispose of him? Jesus combines two commandments, the one about loving God and the one about loving each other into one. He brilliantly states the indisputable fact that to love God means to love your neighbor as yourself. Which commandment is the greatest of all the commandments? And Jesus says, I pick two. The one about loving God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, with every fiber in your soul, and the one about loving your neighbor as yourself. Now, if the scribe had wanted to be picky, he could have said, now Jesus, that's two commandments. But the scribe says, you are right, teacher. And then the scribe summarizes back to Jesus this ultimate truth that nothing really matters more than loving God and loving neighbor as self. And then the scribe adds, this is so much more important than some of the religious practices we tend to get so caught up in here at our temple, like our offerings and our sacrifices. Last winter, we invited the elders and deacons of our congregation to prioritize a list of potential sermon topics. And one of the top vote-getters was the topic we begin a series about today called Christianity 101. The attempt of this series is to define what is essential to the Christian life. What does it really mean to be a Christian? Dr. Graves and I spent weeks discussing what four topics would rise to the top of the heap. And we'd actually love to hear what four topics you would list as essential to basic Christianity. What are the four things you believe are essential to claiming the moniker Christian? Jesus and the religious leaders who challenged him all agreed that the top priority was love. But intellectual assent to an idea is not the same as living it out. Love is not always easy. In the Bible, the first murder takes place not between strangers, but between brothers, Cain and Abel, the sons of Adam and Eve. The Old Testament often reads like a soap opera as family members over and over again throughout the Old Testament betray one another and break one another's hearts rather than loving one another. And today we know that many people seek counseling and therapy because of strained relationships with one's most intimate life companions. Within the current American landscape, we are reportedly as divided as we have been in centuries. What does it mean to love your neighbor if your neighbor disagrees with you on when to wear a mask or the right time to receive a COVID vaccine? Anger and frustration bubbles up within neighborhoods and within families and across cities. But such feelings invade the church as well. I serve on a national religious organization's board, and this week I sat through a two-hour meeting that was focused on resolving a conflict 
that had arisen within the committee. The good work of this committee had stalled as they met a deadlock in making a decision. And I sat there thinking, these people, they love the same God. They even belong to the same branch of God's church, but the anger was seething beneath the surface, and the subtext was never spoken aloud, but it sure felt to me like perceived racial discrimination. Love is hard. Sometimes we believe that love is the most important priority, but we still place other stuff before love. Sometimes we place believing the right thing above love. And by the right thing, I mean you should believe what we believe. It could be about a social issue. We love you, but you better believe what we believe about abortion or LBGTQ issues or gun safety or environmental issues. It could be about a theological topic. We love you, but you better believe what we believe about the virgin birth or the physical resurrection of Jesus or the meaning of Holy Communion. Sometimes the issues are just petty. We love you, but you better dress a certain way in our church. We love you, but why don't you speak English? Why don't you have a green card? Sometimes we simply lose the heart of Christianity and the heart of God. Too many of us who call ourselves Christian have prioritized the wrong things. We have devoted ourselves to God, but we have not discovered how to love one another. Brian McLaren talks about the time that he was seeking a new church to join after he stepped away from serving on a church staff. He realized in that period of life that he wasn't really looking for a church with the typical stuff. He he wasn't really looking for a church with great preaching or great music or interesting programs. What he hungered for most was to find a church that would help him get better at loving. Brian says that if the church was the place that helped each one of us become the most loving version of ourselves, wouldn't, wouldn't that be the kind of church everyone would want to be a part of? Brian proposes that a good model for the future of the church is for the church to become like a school or a studio of love, a place that teaches people how to live a life of love from the heart for God, for all people, no exceptions, and for all creation. You know, one of the things I love about our church is that there are people here who are different from me. Today, in my hearing, are multimillionaires and also folks who know that there will be too much month at the end of the money. We have active leaders who are staunch Republicans and who are dyed-in-the-wool Democrats. Our elders and deacons are gay and straight, black and white, evangelical and theologically liberal. Our vitality as the body of Christ 
is not based on agreement, but on how well we love one another as God has loved us. We love, not because we are the same, but because God summons us to love. It absolutely breaks my heart when someone who's been a member of the church for a long time gets mad and leaves the church. It it happens on occasion in every church, but it breaks my heart because when it happens, I fear that somehow we have probably failed to love that person in the way that God loves them. Love isn't easy, but it is the one thing that matters most when it comes to being a Christian. But love is more than the right answer. It is something evoked deep within us. A journalist on public radio told the story a couple of months back, earlier this summer, about that movement that we've all heard about to save the whales that began back in the 1970s. Prior to that time, no one except the scientists gave much thought about how we might save the whales. It it just wasn't of much interest. But at some point, the scientists were able to capture audio recordings of those whales out in the ocean singing. And then all of a sudden, the common person could hear the voices of the whales in their natural habitat singing. And somehow we as a people began to sense that we shared the planet with these other voices, these other beings who sing. And a a movement took off. I suspect that singing evoked in us an ability to love, not just with our minds, those whales are endangered, but rather with heart and soul and strength in the way that God summons us to love. The true measure of whether our Christian faith really matters is whether or not this faith of ours leads us to love. This love of God and love of neighbor, it comes in so many forms. And in this summer, when I was doing some reading, I glimpsed the power of this love in a 20-year-old memoir written by James McBride called The Color of Water. James tells the story of his mother. As a boy, James could never quite figure out why Mama's skin was so much lighter in tone than his. Of all the people who lived in the housing projects with them in Brooklyn, New York, his mother's skin was lighter than anybody's. And he and his 11 siblings all had much darker skin than Mama's. He would ask her, what color are you? And his mother wouldn't answer him. Finally, he asked her one day, well, what color is God? And she said, God is the color of water. Turns out, his mother was white, an immigrant from Poland who had grown up Jewish as the daughter of a rabbi. But his mother married a black man in Harlem in the early 1900s when such an act was just breathtakingly taboo, even in New York. McBride's mother 
was passionate about two things. She was passionate about going to church and seeing that each of her 12 kids would get a first-class education. And every single one of mama's kids not only went to college, but graduated from college, many with advanced degrees. But when his turn came, he was ready to squander it. He turned to drugs and crime, and he neglected going to class. Finally, somehow, graduated high school. He enrolled in college, and Mama took him to the Greyhound bus station where he was going to board the bus and go to college out in Ohio. She dug around in her coin purse for a long time to find enough cash to purchase his bus ticket. And then she dug in the bottom of her purse and she found all the remaining money she had and she stuffed it into his hand. It was $14. He kissed Ma goodbye and he got on the bus and he, he tried to turn his face away so Mama wouldn't see his tears. And then he peered out the window to see if Mama might cry but he knew she wouldn't because she never cried in front of her kids. She would wait till they were gone. He knew the drill. And this time she didn't cry either. She was pacing back and forth. She puckered up her lips. She frowned her face. She shoved her hands into her pockets. Mama seemed so jumpy, like maybe she needed him to hurry and leave so he could get, so she could run off to the ladies' room. And then instead of waving, she flipped her hand into the air as if to say, go, go on. And the bus took off out of sight, and then it turned a corner, and he looked across the aisle of the bus out a different window, and he saw her. And Mama had broken down. She was leaning on the wall beneath the train trestle with her head bowed, one hand squeezing her eyes as if the tears that flowed out of them could somehow be squeezed into oblivion. And it was his mother's love that empowered him, that propelled him, that sent him back to the best version of himself. And in the epilogue of the book, he writes, love is unstoppable. It is our greatest weapon, a natural force created by God. This is the love that we glimpsed in Jesus, who not only taught us the essence of what God wants, but who showed us this very love as he turned and walked towards the cross.